You're listening to the ILLA podcast, the online home of lectures and conversations hosted by the Institute for International Law and the Humanities at the Melbourne Law School. So I will say welcome everybody to um, our second session of the Academic Skills Circle for this semester. This circle, if you're joining us for the first time, is a wonderful collaboration between the Latrobe Law and Humanities Network, the New South Wales um, or UNSW Critique Network led by Ben Golder and the Institute for International Law and the Humanities at Melbourne Law School directed by Sandhya Pahuja. Uh, Sandhya is presently undertaking a very exciting visiting professorship at Cambridge, so she won't be with us for this session. So I'm joining you today from Nam, Melbourne, on the unceded lands of the Wurundjeri peoples of the Kulin Nation. And as always, I acknowledge Wurundjeri elders, past, present and emerging as keepers of law and country. And I extend a warm welcome to Indigenous participants and listeners. So again, for those who might be joining us for the first time or those who might be listening later, the Academic Skills Circle is modelled on the Knitting Circle. The idea is to bring crafters together to share ideas, techniques and community. And our academic skills circle is intended to do this. It's, it's to create a space for scholars of all levels to share knowledge and reflect on ways of doing things. And topics of discussion uh, in the past have included editing a collection, editing a journal, writing peer reviews. Um, our next session will be on giving conference presentation. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Margaret Davies, who is a Distinguished Professor of Law at Flinders University. Margaret's scholarship over the years, beginning with law and literature in Adelaide and critical legal theory at Sussex, is, I think, itself demonstrative of the elusive balance between breadth and depth. She's been a recipient of four Australian Research Council grants and is a Fellow of the Academy, Academy of Social Sciences in Australia and Academy of Law, and she's been a member and chair of the Humanities and Creative Arts Panel on the ARC College of Experts. She's the author of six books, including most recently the award-winning Law Unlimited and the groundbreaking Eco Law, published this year, as well as our favourite legal theory textbook, Asking the Law Question. So today, Margaret has joined us to share her thoughts and reflections on the topic <coughs> of balancing breadth and depth. So, Margaret, thanks so much for taking the time to join us, and I'll hand over to you now before we open up for our general discussion. Thanks, Kathleen, um, for that wonderful introduction. And I'd, I'd uh, also like to begin by uh, acknowledging the Ghana people from whose land I'm speaking today. So I offered uh, this topic uh, to Ben, Kathleen and Sandhya without really knowing what I meant by it. Um, and the reason I offered it uh, was because I have a self-perception uh, that uh, my weakness as an academic is I always look at the big picture, um, sometimes an enormous picture, in fact, without uh, drilling down, as they say, to use that um, idiom, into the detail. And I've been very impatient with detail. I'm, in, I'm incredibly impatient with detail. It's another reason why I had to become an academic lawyer and uh, not um, a practising lawyer. But does that uh, indicate a lack of depth? Um, what's the relationship between detail and depth? And that's an interesting question, which I might come to in a bit. 
So it's been interesting to me to think about uh, the different ways that depth and breadth uh, can be construed and why it's uh, an issue in the first place. Um, and I'm just going to, I've just made a list of points really um, that I'm going to talk about. Uh, they raise some questions for reflections, but I don't have any decided answers um, about any of these issues. They're just kind of tensions, I suppose, in the way that uh, these ideas can be thought about. And the first one uh, that struck me was something that's been with me for my entire academic career of now 30 years, um, which is the <clears throat> idea that academics clearly do need to have depth in at least one area of research. Uh, that's what being an expert uh, means or what being a researcher in a particular area means to have expertise. But how wide is that area of research? How wide does it have to be in the first place? Um, and to take my own field, legal theory, that is the field uh, everything that exists in legal theory from analytical positivism and natural law theory uh, through to every latest uh, continental philosopher or, or movement um, that happens to be current at the moment, uh, uh, not to mention multiple forms of legal theory uh, that are emerging from beyond uh, European and colonial traditions. So what is the field in the first place? At the other extreme, it would, would it be sufficient to have an in-depth knowledge of perhaps one theorist or one approach uh, in legal theorists with um, no expertise in any anything else? And clearly there's a question of balance between those extremes. And I think for me, the question is about what kind of academic do I want to be, uh, which um, relates to who is my audience, who do I want to speak to, uh, and what what's my milieu. And these things have changed over time. Um, so that's one issue. But the, the question of breadth and depth isn't only about the field of expertise. It's also more particularly about the conduct of research and writing. Um, and I think the conduct of research appears in several different ways. Uh, and one of the things that made me uh, early on in my academic career think about this uh, more particularly was applying for grants um, because grant funding doesn't reward expertise in the abstract. Um, it doesn't reward the fact that you might be, you know, the greatest expert in a particular field. Uh, what it rewards is being able to channel that expertise in a particular way around a focused question or issue. Um, and I really struggled with this at the beginning because I just couldn't see how I could formulate my research in, in that way that I would be asking a particular um, question about something, but bringing a broader body of knowledge uh, to that particular question. And I've sat, as Kathleen mentioned, on large numbers of um, funding panels, mainly with the ARC, but I've um, read hundreds and hundreds of grant applications. And it seems clear to me that the best applications uh, for grant funding um, have questions that on, on their face look clear and straightforward, because obviously it needs to speak beyond the discipline uh, in order to uh, reach the audience of the assessors and the panel. Um, but it's, so, so it has that clarity 
uh, in, the, in the question itself. But it's usually a question which is technically difficult to answer um, and can be unpacked into a series of methodological steps or a, a series of steps in a research plan, uh, hence the need for time and funding. So it has that kind of depth in terms of being able to um, go into the question in uh, a lot of detail. But also, most importantly, it, it combines um, that kind of depth in the question and the approach to the question with the broader resonance beyond the immediate topic. And I think that this is something that is a, a fairly normal piece of advice that um, that supervisors give to honours students or to PhD students is that the best topics are have a narrow question but a broad re resonance. Um, it's not always immediately obvious how to how how to grasp that um, or how to um, bring it into play. But uh, I, I think those that's probably the ideal way of combining breadth and depth is to have uh, some kind of narrow focus that that has a broad resonance. So funding and grant grant applications are one thing, uh, but another thing that um, occurred to me that really comes out of that context um, or partly comes out of that context more and more is the question of interdisciplinarity. And inter interdisciplinarity is another way of combining breadth and depth um, in the sense, and, and it's something that's been on the rise uh, throughout my academic career. Um, what interdisciplinarity actually means is, uh, I think, a relative question. So scientists uh, might see research that combines one field of biology with another field of biology as interdisciplinary. But in, in law, we tend to think of law as the discipline and being interdisciplinary means going beyond the discipline of law rather than combining you know, international law with torts or something like that. We see them both as, you know, within. So it's a relative thing, what counts as being interdisciplinary. And it also takes many different forms. So the most um, usual interdisciplinary engagement that I have uh, used has simply been raiding other disciplines to provide new insights. And I think that's something that we probably all do a lot. There are obvious dangers with that because if you don't understand the discipline, it's, it's, it can be quite problematic. Um, another, <clears throat> um, I, I guess, a more uh, defensible way of uh, becoming interdisciplinary is trying to actually get, gain an expertise or at least some literacy in more than one discipline. But more and more, I think, and we see this in grant funding, is that um, people work with collaborators from other disciplines. And that, that brings both that um, expertise uh, and the breadth that might be required, the breadth and depth, actually, that uh, might be required to answer those questions. Um, so, so interdisciplinarity is another way of thinking about the issues of. Um, breadth and depth, and I've noticed, it's perhaps not a new thing, but the field of theory has uh, in many respects become detached from uh, disciplinary homes. Um, so there seems to be theory at large uh, happening these days, that, and, and it has been happening for quite some time, um, that is not necessarily, lo necessarily located within particular disciplines. 
Um, so even more important than interdisciplinarity, uh, another question that goes to the idea of breadth and depth is, um, are the scholarly reference points for research. And by this I mean essentially who whose research um, uh, is being referred to or used, what, what scholars or groups of scholars are in each of our zones of reference. Uh, and I think that's an issue that goes to both breadth and depth, but it's also about justice and politics, obviously, about reinforcing or contesting scholarly privilege. Uh, 30 years ago, when I started, it was really extremely common to find works in legal theory that discussed and cited only a, a narrow group of white male scholars from a limited number of prestigious institutions. Um, even though 30 years ago there were subdisciplines of legal theory, critical race theory, feminist legal theory, critical legal studies, um, and so forth, that were not exclusively written by uh, those privileged people, but it remained possible nonetheless for all of those bodies of scholarship to be excluded from mainstream legal theory, uh, even though the matters they raised were of significance. So finding research undertaken by a range of scholars obviously adds depth by providing resources to look at a question from new angles and it's more rigorous. Um, but sometimes you need to pay attention or make an extra effort to identify the research published um, by the scholars working in less privileged situations. Uh, their, their work doesn't necessarily appear at the top of the list provided by Google Scholar because it's less cited itself. Uh, and that's something that I become more and more aware of because uh, I do use Google Scholar as a, a, a basic research tool on certain things, but there's a sort of politics of order uh, in those um, those searches. Uh, so another point that I wanted to, this is really, these are really all just disconnected um, issues that I hope we can um, go into a little bit more in discussion. Another issue relates to the, the relationship between depth and detail. And that question that I mentioned at the beginning is, is depth the same thing as detail? And clearly it's not, or at least not in every circumstance. Uh, a very detailed exposition of a piece of legislation may not be very profound, or, or maybe it would be, depending on the circumstances. Providing extra footnotes may or may not uh, add depth. Um, but the question still kind of occurs to me, what is a profound analysis? What, what's a profound statement? How do we evaluate those issues? And it kept coming up for me in, my, um, in the latest book, uh, that I wrote, I kept making statements that I thought were unbelievably trite. Uh, I, I often even said that they were unbelievably trite and obvious, but they seem to me to have quite far-reaching implications. Um, for instance, it's uh, blindingly obvious that human beings are dependent on each other and on the earth. And in um, many respects, it's so obvious that it shouldn't need to be said. Uh, it doesn't need detail to back it up. So, but nonetheless, at the same time, legal theory and much of law ignores the fact of human dependence on the earth. And so the statement becomes a kind of obvious statement with deep implications. Why has it been ignored? And what happens to our thinking if we stop ignoring, if we really properly stop ignoring it, um, rather than just paying lip service to it? How can we make that 
the basis for theory rather than um, just an afterthought or something that we just absorb into theory in some way. <clears throat> so uh, having said, made all of those disconnected points, I'm still not sure that I know exactly what depth is. Um, uh, sort, of, sort of just seems to, you know, be there or not. Um, but then I thought I'd just finish by mentioning a few strategies that I would use in 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 order to really think about, you know, in a practical sense, how to balance uh, out some of these uh, questions. And and the first one that I'm constantly returning to is that even though my instinct is always to go as broad as possible to read um, way out way outside, well beyond the uh, discipline of law and well beyond. Um, even humanities and social science disciplines. I've been reading a lot of um, works from science, various science disciplines as well, even though my, that's my instinct is to go as, take as much breadth as possible. Um, it's, it still remains important to maintain a clear narrative or a clear question or a clear problem to maintain focus. And I guess that's where I think I do try to achieve some level of depth in my research is to maintain that clarity of what it is I'm doing, uh, even if I'm, um, you know, reading something from physics or um, presuming I understand it, which I often don't. But, uh, yeah, just 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 making sure that I can link. And that, that was actually something uh, that I have practised ever since I did my uh, PhD, this kind of thought that there was always a um, purpose, in a sense, or a basic question uh, or golden thread underlying um, the thing that I was writing. Uh, another strategy that I use when I'm writing articles is to work, first work out the breadth and then the depth so that, you know, work out how big is the issue, how big is the article that I want to write, what are the, what is the kind of size of it, and then that gives you um, the answer as to how much depth you can spend on each um each aspect of the uh, uh, article um writing to the audience makes a big difference so knowing what needs to be explained and what doesn't need to to be explained so um if you if you know that your audience is pretty much on the same page as you that um gives you a lot more opportunity to uh delve into the detail and the depth of the question rather than uh, have to explain everything as you go along um, and finding the right collaborators, I think, is also um, an incredibly important aspect of breadth and depth because um, if they are people who are essentially identical to you in the way that you think, then you don't get that added dimension um, to the to to the research or to the question. Uh, and if they're, but if they're, if on the other hand they're too different. Um, uh, you know, you might not get that productive tension that you need in order to develop new ideas. So I think those are my those are my thoughts. Um, just to open things up now, I think we can have a discussion. Thanks so much, Margaret. There was so much there <laughs> to think about, and I'm sure that lots of people will have um, questions and thoughts. Um, I have a couple to get us started. Um, a couple of things that have occurred to me when you were talking just then. Um, one is around perhaps the distinction between 
depth and clarity. So at times I think that depth, at least in my writing, can equate to density (laughs) and the writing it's how to balance um precision or um density you know depth with accessibility if you're writing in a way that um is you know really exploratory and um you want to have precision in your explanations this can sometimes be quite inaccessible for your reader (laughs) so i wonder if you could comment on yeah another i suppose um I know it's a really it's a really difficult question. Uh, I, I started out as a writer much more dense, uh, writing much more densely than I do now. Uh, I've and I've I think that my approach has been to unpack that you know that the the longer I've stayed in a, as an academic, I've, I've been wanting I guess to um, reach a wider audience. Uh, uh, you know, it's nice to have readers <laughs> who, who respond to what you say. And in order to do that, there is a need to unpack. There is a need to kind of um, avoid uh, a density that is alienating uh, to people. Um, and, you know, it, it's, I guess we'd all like to get to that magical point where you can say things in a simple way that people can then think about and say to themselves, wow, that's really profound. I never thought about it like that, but it, but it was a, it's a simple thought. And that would be, to my mind, the ideal. But most of us don't have that skill. I don't have that skill. And so it's a, it's about kind of, you know, continuing to develop as a, as a writer. I mean, I, I work really hard on my writing. Um, I want to make that clear. It doesn't uh, it doesn't just pop out. I, I I actually work really hard on it, and it often starts much more densely. And then the process is unpacking and explaining. And um, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. no. Sorry, I was just kind of yeah finishing the sentence. Really, <laughs> it was kind of <laughs> didn't finish. So there you go. <laughs> no, I was going to say it reminds me of some of our previous discussions on editing yourself and. Mm. Um, it might take several paragraphs in your first attempt at writing to actually make a point. Um, and in that time, you're figuring out for yourself what it is that you are precisely trying to say and being able to communicate it effectively. And then you have to delete those two paragraphs where you were That's going right. in circles. That's right. And, and you know, you spent a whole week on those two paragraphs and suddenly they don't exist anymore because you've said, right, actually, I can write it like this and it's all crystal clear. Or I can start from this point and it becomes my, well, and that's the process of, that's the process of writing. And and I think it's the process of writing, um, you know, with depth, because if if you're if you're not doing that, then maybe well maybe you're just an outstanding thinker, but it could also be that you know you're not achieving that depth. I don't know. Ben, to you. Thanks. 
Kathleen. Thanks, Margaret. That was so thought-provoking and rich. I've got heaps of reflections. The first one that pops to mind is just it's lovely to hear you say that your writing doesn't just pop out in the pellucid <laughs> and clear and beautiful way in which many of us on the call will have encountered it. So <laughs> It's great that the fourth edition of Asking a Law Question doesn't just happen. Um, and that it's, that it's a there's process. A, um, there's a fifth one coming. Oh, no. oh my God. It's good to hear that you're mortal. Um, so... <laughs> so, again, like I really appreciated a bunch of what you um, said um, and I just want to pick up on a couple of those. So the distinction between kind of detail and depth I think is a really helpful and productive one and I actually find that when my writing becomes um, becomes more detailed and sometimes when I'm reading the work of others that is kind of hyper-detailed, often reading PhD student drafts, first drafts of work where it's kind of almost overladen with detail and it's as if the detail is a kind of alibi for thinking it's like I'm just going to get it out there and so the detail is a refuge so and I find this in my own work that the sometimes the more detailed uh, or more in the weeds I get the 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 less depth there is to what I'm saying if by depth I mean you know a, a kind of some kind of profundity I suppose to use that same metaphor some argument some intervention um the detail um can really get in the way of things. So it was, I found it really helpful for you to kind of draw those distinctions or to separate them for us. One other thing I wanted to pick up on was when you were talking about, um, you know, what constitutes breadth and who who is the kind of disciplinary gatekeeper of kind of what counts as a kind of broad reading or an understanding. I, I'm in I'm in my office at the moment, so I don't um, I don't have all my nonfiction. Sorry, I don't have all my fiction, my fun books. They're all back at home. Um, but there's a great book, um, In the Light of What We Know by Zia Rahman, um, in which there's an exchange between two of the characters. And one of them describes his his um, undergraduate training at Oxford uh, as being a training in ignorance, essentially, that he was taught about all those things which it was socially and politically acceptable for him to be ignorant of, which really struck me, you know, as a kind of critique of the kind of narrowness of an Oxford education. Um, I thought, yeah, that's what it is. In a sense, that form of education is an organisation and a sanctifying of ignorance. It's fine. We don't need to know about feminism and post-colonialism and all the rest of it. Um, As long as you know your HLA heart, you're fine. Um, But if you push that further, I guess I kind of I'm not sure if you'd agree with this, but if you're a PhD student, as many of us on the call will be, um, you know, it's a real challenge to kind of toggle between um, between kind of depth and breadth. And sometimes those two need to be pursued, perhaps not in tandem, but it's a, it's a kind of back and forth process that in order to make a narrow intervention, you need to know the fields in which you're doing it and you need to know the stakes of it, which pushes you towards breadth. Um, so it, it must be quite a maddening experience. I remember it was a maddening experience during my own PhD um, to kind of know, you know, where to draw the line when it comes to breadth so that you can then kind of go back in again and you can get that. Mm-hmm. Get that. Um, and so I guess now, contrary to what I just said about the kind of licensing of ignorance, maybe part of the role of a of a supervisor in supervising PhD students is in actually encouraging our students <laughs> to kind of delimit that breadth and to go, well, no, it's 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 fine for you to be ignorant of all the all of these things. Um, you know, you you've expanded to the outermost <clears throat> reaches of what you need to do right now in order to then come back in and, and 
make the argument that you want to do anyway. I'm not sure. Yeah. No, I, th- I think that both of those uh, points um, are very pertinent. And just on the, that second one, you, you, you talked about toggling between um, breadth and depth, and I, I it, it's very, it's a very resonant kind of image because, um, you know, whenever I get into something really deeply. You know, I do find myself immersing myself, but then draw constantly drawing back and asking, "What does this mean?" And I do have a clear recollection of doing that as a PhD student, reading things in in depth and trying to work them out and nut out, you know, the significance and and what they were trying to say. Um, and that was hugely challenging and difficult. But at the same time, then trying to draw back and place it within you know, the question or the field that I was um, looking at. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I think as I think as PhD students, you learn and it's something that continues through your own academic career. You learn that skill of being, especially when, you know, you're writing a piece of work, um, to think about the depth and the detail of particular things that you're working on at the same time as the big picture. Um, it's uh, it, it's really a it's really a skill, and it's the only way you know it's it's necessary to drawing together um, a coherent piece of work, whatever that is. But you'd be interested to know that. Um, so asking the law question, you know, was one of was my first uh, book in actual fact, and I didn't get my PhD published until a few years later because just because of the process and, you know, getting into a new job. But um, asking the law question I always thought of as the background material for my PhD. So it was actually what I learned as background stuff in order to be able to do the And obviously I supplemented quite a lot of it in the writing of the book, but that was kind of the, yeah, the basis of it came from that as well. So I didn't waste that effort in breadth. This will be... Um... A consolation to PhD students on the on the call that you know nothing is in vain. Even the bits that don't make it into your final PhD can still find an afterlife as an award-winning fifth edition um, and much-loved legal theory textbook. Yeah, they, well, it, yeah, nothing nothing's ever in vain. And and I often have read something and put it aside and forgotten about it, and then. Ten years later, I, I I remember it. It's usually a bit random whether I remember it or not, but but. But it does happen. You can, you know, come back to things that you've forgotten totally. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, We have a question in the chat that might require further explanation about contrapuntal reading. Um, Akshay, who has asked the question, would you like to elaborate uh, on that? I I guess contrapuntal, it relates to counterpoint, doesn't it? So um, musical counterpoint. Uh, where you've got two things happening at once. Yeah, but what is contrapuntal reading? Um, Have I I used that? I know Wendy, is it Wendy Brown uses the idea of contrapuntal reading? Is is it reading which kind of has at least two or maybe multiple things going on at once? Uh, Or two stories, tells two stories at once. Is that what you mean, actually? Something like that. I'd always, um, this may or may not be the reference that Akshay has got in mind, but I'd always thought of it 
I think Saeed talks about it um, as a way of reading literary texts about bringing bringing that kind of disavowed kind of colonial and imperial conditions of production of texts. Um, I'm thinking of kind of the reading of Mansfield Park, for example, mm. um, and bringing that back into the the picture. Um, right. Yeah. But so, I, I, so, but, so, so, yeah. But I, I think it's. I think so. It talks about. You may not be the only one who talks about contrapuntalism. May not be the mm. only one who's doing contrapuntal readings. But that might be one reference. But it's been a while since I've. Um, yeah, well, it, but but it makes it makes a lot of sense in to as a as a as an image in terms of you know what we try what many of us try to do, which is to you know is is really to tell two stories and and one is um, and and hope that something kind of pr- probably not that melodic <laughs> or beautiful, but hope that something comes out of the the simultaneous telling of two stories. Um, which would be in in the case of you know uh, the, the colonial system that we have in Australia, you can tell that story and at the same time um, uh, be aware of or, or pay attention to other stories that that the colonial story has has repressed and try to bring them forward and give them a little bit more attention or. Um, and that would be a, a kind of maybe a contrapuntal style um, to do, but not to do those things separately, but to do them together within the same piece of work. Yeah, that's great. Um, Robbie, did you have a question? Yes, thank you, uh, and thanks, thanks for the presentation. It was it was great. I, I don't think that there's an answer, but I'd certainly be interested in hearing your thoughts on this notion of making the switch between the depth and the broad resonance because once you're in um, talking in such a level of detail as we do, um, it feels sometimes almost speculative to then use the the detail and draw out the the bigger lessons that you're really trying to draw out. And so I wonder if if um, you might say or you might have some thoughts about that. Yeah, it's a great question. It's a and it's one that's kind of always puzzled me. So yeah, I mean, I think I, I don't see anything wrong with speculation. I think speculation is a good thing to do. Um, and but often I have, it has to be said that for a lot of my academic career, I've kept them to myself. I've kept the speculative. What does this mean? Where is this going? What do I really think? I've kept a lot of that to myself, and just you know built fairly carefully a lot of people wouldn't say it's particularly careful but I think from my point of view I've regarded it as a fairly cautious building of you know a a way of thinking of what I was prepared to say but more and more I'm I'm prepared to say whatever I think but also to develop you know make sure it's backed up and developed and as much as I can in in any given time um, and not be too worried about what the discipline thinks of the work, um, just to 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 put it out there, I guess. Um, so I think I think there's a, a moment for for being bold and moments maybe for not being so bold. Like do, in a PhD, you obviously want to be original, but you don't necessarily want to 
be two out there, um, depending on who you think your examiners might be. Um, and obviously you do need all of that footnoting detail that Ben spoke about. So, um, yeah, but I but I think there's a lot of change going on in academia and I think now's a good moment for allowing new thoughts, completely new new thoughts and new ideas to 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 come out. But yes, I but the other aspect of your question question was about, you know, how do you bring those out? It's really difficult and and uh, I started by saying everyone's different and I often find that translation really really hard. So I I say things I mean, I cannot, for the life of me, translate it into any kind of real-world experience or real-world example or people ask, what does this mean for the law? And I kind of, you know, I don't know. I let someone else do that work <laughs> So, <laughs> or think about that because it's just not, it just it doesn't feel like it's within my skill set to do that. So everyone engages in conversations from their own perspective. And you have to do what you're best at. It's interesting to hear you reflect, Margaret, on what stages of your career you have felt um, able to be more speculative or to engage in more depth in your research. And mm. that is one of the questions that I had actually was, you know, depth requires sustained research and writing time. It's about the time, which is what we all <laughs> are seeking. And I wonder about whether you feel that there are times, different times in your academic career to focus on breadth or depth, um, given all of the other institutional demands that we have, you know, the, the grind of outputs, annual outputs and metrics and external funding and so forth, or whether this is something that you feel has to anchor your research at all times. No, well, no, it's obviously there's a huge balancing act that goes on most of the time. I've, I'm, you know, been, I've been very fortunate in recent years to, to just have research time and not much else. But, you know, for 26 years I struggled with exactly that balance. Um, and I think that the way I personally managed it was to make sure that I only took took things on that I felt would advance my narrative as an academic. So in my case, that was when it came to administration, I took on research administration. I was asked to do other forms of administration, but I said no to them because I felt that it was that particular form of administration that I had most to offer to and that I you know, could immerse myself in and that might also actually in some ways um, enhance my own research because when you do research administration you find out a lot about what other researchers are doing and sometimes you get ideas sometimes you get you know for what to read or where to go um, or the way people are thinking about something or you know methodologies what they're using so you know it does act so I, I, I actually did made that as a deliberate choice uh, in my after about 10 years, I, you know, I was director of studies and I did some other things, but then I thought, no, I've got to kind of keep control of all of this other stuff. But also it's about, you know, when when you do teaching, are you, are you approaching your teaching in a way that you can learn new things from your teaching instead of just repeating the same old thing? And I found that helped me a lot. So offering new courses that um, I could use to 
feedback into my research by the kinds of readings and and so on. And I know that a lot of people um, do that very productively. Um, so it's about trying to make the pieces fit together in a way instead of drawing you off in kind of completely, in, in fact, making you into a completely different person in that context than in that context. So maintaining some sense of coherence uh, as a as an identity as well. So that's, I think, how I managed it. But it is all about, yeah, there's a lot about um, the amount of time that you've got and it has varied hugely. There are some years when I've had no time at all to do any research and other years when I've had actually quite a lot. And grant funding has always been um, a big, big part of that, you know, quite a lot when it has come. Oh, yes, Jade. Thanks so much, Kathleen. Thank you so much, Margaret. This has um, just been really, really great. There's so many points that I think aren't really always discussed, so I've got lots written down to think about a lot more, and it's really helpful because I'm trying to do some interdisciplinary work in my PhD. Um, I had two questions actually related both to doing interdisciplinary work. Um, so I, I'm just wondering how how we should think about audience when drawing in insights from other disciplines so you were think you were saying if you were um, reading about physics and perhaps incorporating that into your work would you still think of a legal audience as your primary audience and then would that mean needing mm. to explain those interdisciplinary influences more and then the second question was um, you said one of the main ways of doing interdisciplinary work is sort of rating the disciplines for insights into concepts or or ideas and you're just wondering if you had any other um, advice about how to do that with respect and to do it in a in a um, in a sound way. And you said you need to understand what you're drawing from, of course. But if you had any other tips about that, I'd really appreciate it. Thank you. I do feel I, well. Um, yeah, I mean, when it when it comes to the science thing, I. Um, uh, I would have to say that, you know, I, I definitely don't think of myself as in any way speaking to a science audience. I'm still clearly speaking to primarily a legal theory audience um, and using the using the science, um, yeah, it probably does require a bit more translation, but um, because I'm not a scientist, my knowledge is probably not that much, you know, or not even any better than your average kind of person who did physics at high school um so from that point of view it's more about you know finding out what and how um some of those scientists are thinking at a broad level and then trying to translate it into a language that makes sense so it's thinking it's it's using um I use this metaphor in the book, it's using it as a kind of thinking ground so it's there it's material that you can use it to think with without necessarily fully understanding or engaging uh, with it. So, um, and I, I uh, probably, yeah, just a little bit more care in how those uh, things are expressed, but with the knowledge that some people will still find it a bit alienating, I guess, if they if they kind of just not attuned to that style of thinking at all. Um, so, so, yes, but I... I uh, um, I haven't had much feedback on that aspect of of my latest book, um, and I'm quite interested to see. I know some people 
um, are interested in it in that aspect, but um, no one has said has specifically addressed it. Um, so the other question, the other aspect was about oh yeah, rating other disciplines. Well, I think there's a sort of commonality among disciplines among the disciplinary basis um, in legal theory uh, in the sense that, there's, there, as I said, there is this kind of theory at large that seems to kind of circulate among theorists regardless of the disciplinary background. And so from, from that point of view, you know, um, you, do, you do have that commonality inside, you know, legal theory as a discipline, but also this common basis. But and it's probably that that I was speaking of in terms of rating more than you know obviously if you're if you if you're looking for something empirical and you could you could look to a sociology journal or look to socio sociological things, you can find evidence and you can find critique of that evidence. you can find information that allows you to engage in it. But of course, you don't necessarily have um the whole background. And this is something that I was actually very aware of when I started um, reading more in legal pluralism and social theory, because I realised that I'd been totally immersed in critical theory and, you know, one particular continental tradition. And then I started reading in legal anthropology and legal sociology, and I didn't know a single thing about Durkheim or Weber or, the you know, the whole historical reference um, map was completely foreign to me. So sometimes, you know, it, there's a bit of coming up to speed or trying to, without, you know, spreading yourself so ridiculously thin. I mean, you know, it's, yeah, it is a balance. Mm. I would encourage other people to um, raise your hand if you have a question because we're drawing close to the end of our time with um, Margaret and the um, broader conversation, but I just wanted to explore a little bit more this idea of theory at large. I know what you're referring to generally, but I wonder if you could expand on this. You're thinking about this as a kind of um, disciplinarily, maybe not collapse, but surpassing or still as dialogic. When we talk about interdisciplinary work, um, when we're doing funding applications, for example, I I often wonder what is the interdisciplinarity that the um, assessors have in mind? Is it this kind of theory at large? I suspect not. It's more mm. dialogic. And so to hold those two ideas in mind, you know, the idea that we are engaged in a um, broader conversation across disciplines uh, have been for some time, but there are limits to this, or do we need to somehow maintain disciplinary boundaries um, for coherence or the integrity of disciplines? I wondered if you could ex expand on that a bit. Well, I, th I think it's fairly evident that disciplines are changing. Um, and there is more crossing over disciplines, um, but you know, I don't think we should be tossing out disciplinary expertise either. And that's the last thing we would want to do in law, in particular, because you know, there's a sort of um, well, there's a professional expertise that goes along with that, and that is accompanied by the idea of um, the discipline of law that needs to be maintained. Obviously, that we can't do without. So. But at the same time, when you're an academic, you do have the freedom to move <clears throat> above and beyond. And um, 
The idea of the floating theory or theory at large comes from Jonathan Culler, actually, in his book, The Introduction to Legal, in Introduction to Literary Theory, or Literary Theory and Introduction. He's got, he's got a fantastic first chapter, and he talks about theory at large. And I think what he's talking about is all of those continental theorists, psychoanalysis and others, um, those familiar names that we know who are used across disciplines in all sorts of, you know, they, they're used in virtually all of the humanities and social science disciplines. But I think there's a kind of another generation of theory uh, emerging in which, you know, say, for instance, post-humanism, we've been talking about that quite a lot. And it's a it's a sort of, you know, idiom that, that crosses uh, many different disciplines. And I think that's a good thing because you can't actually talk about that stuff without addressing interdisciplinary or addressing it with this interdisciplinary dialogue. Um, so, no, I agree with you. There's an important difference to be made between that dialogic um, idea of interdisciplinarity and the kind of transcendent idea of interdisciplinarity, and they offer different things um, in a way, both both uh, quite important. So I can see that there's a... Um, Another question from Akshay, which I'm not sure that I can answer. Um, what's the difference between feminist scholarship and writing for women, especially in the background? Feminist scholarship is still writing for male general audience. I want to know, is there a distinct way to write for women? Thank you very much. Um, yes, so, yeah, I'm not sure that I can answer this uh in detail, but I think there is, you know, obviously there's, there's feminism has long had a debate about theory and practice. So, and the critique of some feminist theory has been that it's been too theoretical and it doesn't actually address the the actual concerns of um, of of women in their daily lives, and that, so therefore it becomes too remote. So, in that sense, there could be a disconnect between writing feminist work and writing for women. But um yeah, again, I you know, I, I think that there is nonetheless an interplay between those things. And ideally there's an interplay and you'd want to be able to write. But academic work it still has to retain its in a sense distinctiveness um, or academic nature. So yeah, it's an interesting question, but not one that there's a clear cut answer to. I think Ben has got something to say. I was going to say, I'm disavowing any intention to try and answer Akshay's excellent but very broad question, but that was, mm. you know, disavowed because I was on mute. Um, <laughs> I, I wanted to ask, I wanted to pick up on something you said, I think right at the beginning, Margaret, in talking about, I suppose, deciding between or toggling between or navigating the kind of imperatives of breadth and um, and depth is that it depended on the kind of academic that you wanted to be or the kind of scholar that you wanted to be um, or the voice that you wanted to use at a particular point in time. And I was also gladdened to hear that you, you know, made a point of saying that in your own work, this has kind of changed and shifted um, over time. And I just, I just it wondered, it kind of made me, you know, thinking about, thinking about um, the kind of, you know, the different voices we adopt at different um points in our work uh, relative to the different audiences that we want to reach and whether whether you think that there's a particular ethic of being a, a you know an in-depth 
scholar as opposed to the ethic of the broad-reaching scholar who kind of rambles widely over um different terrains like does it does being a does 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 going for breadth in your scholarship or even in your teaching kind of rely you know necessitate you being brave perhaps in a different way or being more comfortable with ignorance or being more curious and is is being a depth writer you know does that rely on different forms of um different ways of being different um different values i don't know well, it could do. I mean, I've always regarded all of my academic work as a work in progress. And if I've made mistakes um, or if I've done something poorly or haven't, you know, considered something fully, misread people, I've always um, regarded it as part of the ongoing process of learning new things. But, but I suppose I suppose there is a different maybe there is a different personality um, between the, you know, as regards the person who is very comfortable with depth and detail and a focus on a particular thing and uh, the person who um, goes across many different ideas and areas um, and, you know, uh, tries to connect them together. I mean, I, but I think that the most important thing is to be able to to identify, if not to a broader audience, because I don't think I can do that. I think it's really hard to a broader audience, but to be able to identify for an academic audience what it is that you do or what it is that, you know, what is that thread that connects. I mean, I can still see the thread that connects my PhD through to the work that I'm doing now. It, you know, I can see that. It's actually quite clear. And the more I think about it, the more I go, oh, yeah, I went from this to this to this to this. And it has actually built up and kind of broadened out and become, but still basically the same style of thinking, the same thing. I'm doing the same thing. I'm just doing it in different way and with different materials. And it has become, you know, extended, very much extended over, but, but I can see those steps quite clearly. So in a sense, the breadth has, I mean, I started broad, um, but with a particular obvious question in my in my PhD. Um, but with this idea that I wanted to take legal theory beyond what it had been up until that point. So, yeah, I think I think having that thread or that narrative or that focus is um, really important. Um, that you can't just jump around from topic to topic. Uh, it always needs to be connected to the thing that you did previously in some way um, or the thing, you know, that you did two steps ago so that you've got some way of explaining how you got from there to here. Otherwise, you probably don't become a deep thinker. You become, you know, kind of expert in a number of things but uh, without true depth. I don't know. Maybe you do. Everyone's different. <laughs> this is just, you know. I think this might relate to Francis's question in the chat around um, early career researchers and trying to discern what type of scholar you should be. Um, your thoughts yeah. on that? Uh, yeah, look, I think this is a really hard choice. What kind of scholar? I, I So many times when I was beginning in my first 10 years, I found myself in groups of mainly men doing analytical legal positivism and they were discussing Hart and Dawkins and 
I, you know, I felt like I was supposed to know about that stuff, but I kind of, and I kind of did know about that stuff, but I really wasn't interested in that stuff. So, you know, and I, and, and it seemed to be, you know, where I found myself. So, um, and mostly because people had invited me to, you know, be a different voice at their conferences. <clears throat> so it, it was for good reason that I was there. But um, it, yeah, you do you do have to continually ask yourself, is this where I want to be? And and I think if you if you are too comfortable, maybe you know, for me that wouldn't be a good thing either. If I was too comfortable in my in where I was. That might mean that I'm not challenging myself or not listening to different points of view. Um, but some people may find it surprising or maybe reassuring, I don't know. But I've so often found myself listening to conference papers and listening to <clears throat> um, lectures and so on that I have absolutely no idea what's going on in that. So just not being able to engage with the idiom or not understanding. But I kind of feel that over time. You do pick up a lot from those experiences. Yeah, I'm not sure that I really do fit in anywhere, but possibly that's a feeling that a lot of academics have. I hope that's a comforting thought for everyone <laughs> to know that at your point in your career, you're not really sure where you fit in and not quite sure what type of scholar you want to be. <laughs> it's in. Uh, well, I know. Well, well, I know what I want. I know what I want to say, but I don't know kind of where that places me. You yeah. know, so. Yeah. I think that neatly answers Francis's question, actually, um, perhaps in the negative, that it's not necessary to conform to a particular kind of scholar. Well, and this is something that I was really quite deeply worried about at the beginning. I thought that I could only say certain things. I had to engage with certain scholarship. I had to, you know, kind of define and limit my scholarship in a particular way. I had to use a particular kind of language. And I, it took me <clears throat> some years to disengage from all of those expectations, I have to say, and I wish I'd done it earlier. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, that's very encouraging, I think, um, particularly for critical legal scholars who don't want to engage with heart. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much. We've reached the end of our hour. Uh, we've really appreciated your um, thoughts and reflections and um, thank you very much. And look forward to uh, our next session. I would encourage everyone to come along. Um, we will circulate details in due course on how to, the art of conference paper uh, presentation. So thank you again, Margaret. You're welcome. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. Thanks, Thanks so much, questions. Margaret. That was excellent. See you next time, everybody. You've been listening to the ILLA podcast. To find out more, go to soundcloud.com forward slash illa podcast that's double i l a h podcast